0: We're going to get back to that passage in Acts chapter 2 in a little bit, uh, because uh, in the midst of that passage, they quote from Psalm 16, uh, particularly in verse 10, uh, which is, we're only looking at uh, one verse of that, when uh, they, David actually quoted, not David, sorry, Paul, Peter. <laughs> Usually quoted for more than that. Paul also quoted from it in Acts 13 in one of his sermons. So hence the running together in my brain. So, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Father, as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples in Emmaus, so we ask that our minds would be opened that we might understand the scriptures, the reality of the resurrection, and therefore know Christ more fully and ourselves as well. For your glory and our good, we ask this
1: in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the benefits of
0: the pandemic is that people are forced uh, to face the reality of their own mortality. Uh, We push that aside at almost every opportunity. Uh, We're used to seeing death on TV. I mean, it happens all the time in the movies and the shows that we watch. it's, It's no big deal because they're just actors. We sort of put away the thought that we too one day shall die. Uh, But this pandemic has kind of pushed it into our face in many ways. Uh, We're seeing the death counts, and those are real people. Those are not simply actors telling a story. As we think about the resurrection, as we think about uh, this holy week that takes place, uh, death, of course, takes a prominent place in our thinking about this. There's a question that arises about what happens between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. The Apostles' Creed, from which we read, uh, makes a statement that is controversial, is frequently misunderstood, or um, it's understood in a variety of ways. And we're actually looking at that as part of today, uh, I trying to understand this text uh, so that we handle this rightly. And so the first question that I really want us to to consider as we think about the resurrection is, what happened to Jesus between his death and between his resurrection? And Hanel's Messiah, which we've been talking a little bit about, uh, he brings us Uh, 2, Psalm 16 as the the first of of the texts that he deals with in terms of the resurrection. This, of course, is prominent, as I mentioned before, because it was used by Peter in Acts chapter 2 and then Paul in Acts chapter 13 as they preached their sermons to crowds. They went back to this text to show the reality of the resurrection having been prophesied in the Old Testament. David in Psalm 16 speaks of God's faithfulness, essentially, from cradle to grave. He's speaking of himself predominantly, but we have to recognize that David speaks of of God's faithfulness to him, not simply as a person, but also as a lowercase m, Messiah or anointed one. He has promises from God that are one that he would be the king of Israel and two that he would preserve the king of Israel and of course in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 that he would preserve David's dynasty or line. And so when David speaks these words in Psalm 16, it's not just simply about him and his personally, but also him his line and eventually the capital M messiah that would follow and so uh, this is a big arrow that goes from david to jesus peter speaks about this in first peter chapter 1 concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so uh, both Peter and Paul recognize King David not simply as king but also as a prophet and recognize that David prophesied about the sufferings of the Messiah who was to come as well as the subsequent glories. And we see both the sufferings and the glories found in this passage in Psalm 16. When he says, again, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David had great confidence in God that his trials would not be his end. He has this great confidence precisely because of the promises that God had made. David is speaking in faith. He's living the life of faith. And the life of faith is one that rests upon the promises of God. David is not saying this because he believes that he's so good, but because God is so good. As we come to this uh, phrase, this sentence within this Hebrew poetry, we recognize the parallelism that is there, and John Calvin uh, sees these phrases as synonymous parallelism, which means that they're speaking about the same thing. In other words, uh, what Calvin thought, and I'm not saying that what Calvin thought was right. I've got to hang on there for a moment. What Calvin thought was that both of these phrases spoke to the corruption of the grave. And so for Calvin,
1: this word Sheol speaks simply of the physical reality of the grave. But we need to recognize, all the way back in Genesis chapter
0: 1, we find that Adam was made a man with a body, and a soul. A body-soul union. And David is no different. He too was this body-soul union. And so it's probably uh, much better to understand this passage, this parallelism, as either synthetic or climactic parallelism in which ideas are added in the second phrase. And so they're not speaking about the same thing, uh, but it's speaking of his soul and his body, of Sheol and the grave, not simply Sheol as the grave. Both of these things are in mind in this particular verse of Scripture. Why do I say this? There are a lot of reasons why, and one of them is that the Old Testament continually affirms the reality of life after death. Way back in Genesis again, uh, we see that amongst the promises of God, God says that you will be gathered to your fathers, speaking about his death. Uh, There was something about that, there was a gathering to the fathers, and an expectation that Death was not the end of existence. And so Abraham expected some sort of life after death. Similarly, we see in Genesis 37 when uh, the brothers come to Jacob and they lie to him and say that his favorite son Joseph is dead. Jacob says this, well, First, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. He's not thinking simply, I'm going to die, mourning, but I'm going to go and be reunited to my son, and until that day happens, I shall mourn for him. First uh, Samuel chapter 2, we see this phrase, this sentence. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And so here again, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. We see the parallelism. The Lord kills, meaning he brings down to Sheol. He brings life, meaning he raises up. And this seems to be one of these early mentionings of the reality,
1: not simply of life beyond the grave, but resurrection. First Kings chapter 2. When David is telling Solomon
0: what to do, and some of it has to do with the people who have plagued David for years, one of whom was Joab, his cousin who was a little headstrong and rebellious, to say the least, as well as a bit bloodthirsty. So David says to Solomon, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol
1: in peace. Meaning, put him to death and send him to Sheol. Of course, we have the
0: death of David's son, That we read about, that Rick read about already, and David's anticipation that he will go to his son, his son still alive, so to speak, this life beyond this earthly existence. One last passage that I want to mention, and that's from Psalm 18, which is very similar to this. This is a person who's fearing the cords of death that have encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is of course quoted by Jonah while he's in the belly of the fish, but it speaks of death, it speaks of corruption, it speaks of not just the grave, but the reality of the place of the dead. And so we see that in this, in many places, Sheol, which is found over 63 times, I think it's 64 times in the, the whole Old Testament, Sheol is often used to, to speak of not simply the grave, although sometimes it is simply the grave, but to speak also of the place of the dead, the underworld. And we, we tend to think of the underworld only in one way, We tend to go directly to thoughts of hell. Now, the way that they understood it was not that way. They understood it from what we can piece together from ancient writings that are extra biblical, okay, including Second Temple Judaism. So that's the the time of Christ writings from around the time of Christ. Is that they really they commonly understood Sheol as having two chambers? Uh, On the one hand, you have the righteous dead, meaning those who are righteous by faith like Abraham, as we see in Genesis 15, and then there's the wicked dead, and there's a gulf that lies between them, so people cannot pass from one to the other, nor influence one to the other, and we see this reflected in Jesus' parable in Luke 16. Now, uh, for the, his audience to, to grasp this parallel, this, sorry, this parable, uh, it must reflect something of what they thought. And so it speaks of the poor man, and it speaks of the rich man. This poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so the idea would be not that Abraham's side is heaven, but the idea would be that Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom is how it's usually respected, this idea of paradise, is still part of Sheol, but it is not the place of punishment that
1: the wicked like this rich man experienced. It's as if you're at the zoo, and there's the lions and the tigers and the
0: bears, and what usually is uh, between you and them is not only a fence, but also a gulf or a moat of some sort. Uh, They can't cross and do damage to you, Thankfully, unless you're foolish and climb the fence and try to swim the moat, <laughs> then you're in trouble. Uh, but we see it's similar to that. The, to put it perhaps another way, uh, the wicked are quarantined in one portion
1: of Sheol, not the whole of Sheol. And so as we reckon with the scriptures,
0: it seems to imply that the greater David soul, aka Jesus, was in Sheol while his body was buried. Jesus experienced the reality of being disembodied. The eternal Son of God
1: is united to full humanity, body and soul. It's believed
0: that one of the reasons that this was Uh, This phrase was placed within the Apostles' Creed is to guard against the false doctrine, the heresy of Apollinarianism or Adoptionism. And some of you probably said, I've never heard of those phrases, those words. And that's okay. That false teaching indicates that Jesus assumed a body to himself, but not also a human soul to himself. And so Jesus was not fully human in that false doctrine. But we believe that Jesus took full humanity to himself, and so it's not just that God dwelt in a body, but this is body and soul. And so during that period after the the crucifixion, the body of Jesus is taken, and, and instead of being buried along with all the rest of the criminals just tossed on the dump heap, He was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and buried in his own tomb. He was buried amongst the rich. And so we have a sense of the beginning of his ascent in glory.
1: But his soul, his soul did not go directly to the presence of the Father.
0: But his human soul did what, like everyone else did, and went to the place of the dead. Not to suffer, His suffering, the wrath of God had been done, but Jesus didn't just experience the process of death, but Jesus experienced the reality of death, the state
1: of death in that interim. The early doctrine of the descent within the church uh,
0: indicated that it was not that his his soul suffered, they didn't That was added by some later on, unfortunately. Uh, But initially, this doctrine that was prevalent throughout the early church fathers was that his soul was not
1: suffering there, but it was in Sheol. The Westminster Larger Catechism
0: indicates, question, answer 50, that Jesus remained under the power of death, not simply dying, but experiencing the state of death. Which is commonly said, as it refers back to the Apostles' Creed and the the statement, he descended unto Hades. Hell is probably not the best translation of that. And so Jesus remained under the power of death and Sheol. And I might add, for us and our salvation. So, how in the world does this fit in with the resurrection of Jesus? And for that, we really need to go to the Sermon of Peter on Pentecost with, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter's sermon is addressing people who had this particular understanding of Sheol, uh, they had also known who Jesus was. And so, Peter doesn't have to do a lot of pre-evangelism. These are faithful Jews who have come to Jerusalem for Pentecost and likely have been there for many of the other festivals like they were supposed to, and therefore they have encountered, or at least known of, Jesus. And Peter says that Jesus was a man attested to you By God, or another way of putting that would be authenticated to you by God through his works, through his wonders, through his signs. This Jesus, in other words, is approved by God. This Jesus is a godly person accomplishing great and mighty things. And and Peter says, You know about this, you know who he was. You've heard tell, and perhaps even seen yourself, uh, that God had attested about the reality of Jesus to you. But he also notes that God was at work by delivering Jesus through his plan to be crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so we see that the death of Jesus is not simply accidental, uh, but God has taken Jesus and placed him into the power of the wicked that he might be killed, crucified. One of the interesting things about this word lawless is that it can be used to refer simply to Gentiles because they were without or apart from the law of God, but it can also refer to wicked people. And both of these seem to be in view because uh, the Jewish leaders broke God's law and handed Jesus over to the Gentiles in order to kill him as they
1: wanted to do but could not do themselves. So Jesus, the righteous one,
0: suffered in the place Well, suffered as a wicked man on the behalf of wicked people. In other words, Jesus bore the penalty of sin. Understand that we just go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where God tells Adam, The day you
1: eat of that fruit, dying you will die. Death penalty. death sentence. Sin always brings the death penalty. Sin
0: is simply a want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, it doesn't measure up to God's standard or it breaks God's standard. God's standard is good. God's standard is um, in line with how we were created to function in terms of our relationship with him and our relationship with other people. And that's why the moral law has both of those components, uh, the vertical part, and then it follows with the horizontal part. And we all have to recognize that we all sin every day in thought, word, and deed by either not being conformed to what it tells us to do or by also breaking, going past the boundaries that God has established for us. And so we do this when we send off the nasty email to somebody, when we insult and call people names, when we bear false witness about them, when we covet other people's stuff with greed, uh, when we wish we could kill people. We all have these experiences. We all have these moments. We all pretend we don't, and yet, in fact, we do. Because they violate the law of God, we're sinners. And hence the need for Jesus, the Lamb of God, to come to be in the place of sinners,
1: to bear that curse of death for us. And so Jesus was delivered purposely
0: by his Father, willingly on his own part. And Jesus remained under the power of death as our representative in order to destroy death's power. For instance, Romans 10, one of these great passages, Paul talks about who will ascend to heaven to pull Christ down, and the answer is no one. But then he, f- he continues, who will descend Into the abyss, which is another phrase that is used for Sheol. And it's parenthetically says, that is to bring Christ up from or out of the dead. And so it points to the fact, it's not just someone going to dig Jesus up out of his tomb, but who will go down and raise Jesus from the dead, from the place of the dead, which is not geographic, because we're talking about souls
1: here. And the answer, of course, would be no one. No one
0: could rescue him. No earthly person could rescue him from the grave. Similarly, we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but he had also descended Into the lower regions of the earth. That Jesus descended not simply to sea level, or in the case of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit below sea level, but that Jesus had descended to the lower
1: regions under the earth. No one had escaped from Sheol. No one had been rescued by loved ones from Sheol. David
0: didn't storm Sheol in order to get his son. He couldn't do it. And so for Jesus to be under the power of death looks incredibly grim. That's exactly what the disciples thought. Uh, They were scattered and disheartened because Jesus was dead. They thought all hope had been lost. They didn't yet understand that this was the very thing that would save them from their sin and the wrath of God. And so uh, now in his sermon, Peter tells these people that God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. And then Jesus uh, sorry, then Peter brings them back to Psalm 16 to indicate how this was prophesied. This was something that was not made up by the apostles, but something that was talked about by David himself. The resurrection, a release from the misery of death, a breaking of the power of death. Something that we sang about uh, numerous times this morning. As I stood there while we sang the songs, I was paying attention to the lyrics and how many times it talked about being loosed from hell or breaking free from the place of, essentially, the place of the dead.
1: We sing about it, but we tend not to think about it very much. Jesus was dead and the resurrection is a rejoining of
0: his body and his soul. The greater David's soul was not abandoned or deserted in Sheol, but he was delivered as a righteous man. The greater David's body would not decay like David's body had He would not see corruption, but both of them would be joined back together again. And we find the glorified Jesus. Part of the point here is that Jesus experiences Sheol so that we don't have to experience Sheol. Jesus was raised out of the dead, so that we don't join the dead in
1: the same way. Romans 6 talks about the fact that we are united
0: to Christ in death, and that's part of what this means. That we experienced the state of death in Christ through our union with him when he experienced it. We, too, were under its power while he was under its power before breaking its power. And so Jesus was freed from the power of death, I guess I should say, in, re- in his resurrection. What are the results of Christ's resurrection? You well, see, Jesus, as the Messiah, was raised from the
1: dead for us. This morning, um, a bunch of my friends, my
0: well-meaning friends and well-meaning congru- congregants, um, see, I, I wear my Fitbit when I go to bed. My phone is downstairs, and my Fitbit doesn't always work like it's supposed to. It's supposed to notify me when I get texts, and it doesn't always do that. And sometimes you are the person who experiences the frustration of me not knowing that you texted me because, you know, it didn't work right. This morning it worked right. And so here I am getting these texts of Christ has risen, and I have not yet risen. (laughs) I am still in bed, and I'm thinking to myself, don't they understand uh, that in Christ's resurrection early on Sunday morning, it was not an example to us, uh,
1: but he was representative for us. (laughs) Representative for us. He tasted it so that we don't have to taste it in the same way. And it's seen in a number of other ways of describing this, like drinking the cup of wrath.
0: He didn't deserve the cup of wrath, but he takes it from our hand and drinks it himself. And now in the resurrection, we see that he has been vindicated so that we can be justified. We see in Ephesians 4 that passage where he descended to the lower places it talks about how he when he ascended on high he led a host of captives. One way of understanding this and I think it's the right way is that he emptied that chamber of sheol for the righteous dead.
1: He emptied it and brought them to heaven in his resurrection. But we see
0: additionally, Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Sheol. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus in his lordship is not simply Lord of heaven, not simply Lord of earth, but now because of his victory is also Lord of Sheol. He has, as it says in Revelation, the keys to death in Hades. Why? Because he conquered over them because he went there. Unfortunately, historically, I said uh, early on this was a the, this doctrine uh, seemed to be really positive, uh, more biblical. Since that time, there there became strains of universalism, as though Jesus saves everybody. He completely emptied Sheol, and I don't believe that for a second. So don't accuse me of. Of uh, overstepping biblical bounds here. There's also uh, a thread that kind of puts this into like, people have a second chance after their death to uh, believe in Christ. And I firmly reject that as well. The point again is that these people were the believing dead. This was Abraham. This was Jonah. This was David himself, Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, who in, Jer- in Jericho, Ruth, the Moabitess, who took the God of the Israelites as her own and ended up being in the genealogy of David and then, therefore, Jesus himself. All of these people who, though they were sinners, believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, uh, those people were in that place and those are the ones that Jesus redeemed
1: and delivered from the place of the dead. He enriches us, as it talks about there in
0: Ephesians 4. He gives gifts to men, it says. And so Jesus enriches those that he redeems with these spiritual gifts as a victorious king enriches his soldiers where it's almost turned some things on the head, because usually in the, in the um, victory parade, you've got the people you've captured, uh, but here it seems to be G- these are the people Jesus has released who had been captured. The host of the delivered. The host of the rescued.
1: The host of the redeemed. And Jesus enriches them. United to Christ,
0: we see from the rest of this passage uh, in um, Psalm 16 that is quoted by Peter in Acts 2, uh, that, that they are full of gladness with your presence. All the dead in Christ are now in the presence of the Father through the work of Jesus, particularly in the resurrection.
1: They're in his presence. They're full of joy. Uh, they no longer deal with the toils of life.
0: We see in Hebrews 2, another part of this, and, and I'm sorry I'm bringing up so much scripture today. Uh, I feel like I'm jumping all over the place, which is not, which is not usually what I want to do. Uh, but the author of Hebrews notes, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay? The incarnation, he's made lower than angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Moving to verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so the author of Hebrews indicates that most people live in the fear of dying and the fear of what happens after death. And they live in that fear
1: precisely because of the evil one. Lifelong slavery, worrying about death.
0: And as I said... COVID-19 has brought this to the forefront for so many people. Uh, there are so many people who hear of pandemics and go directly to fear and panic. Because they have no hope. Because they don't see the one who has tasted death for them. They don't believe in one who has tasted death for them.
1: Uh, they, have, they have
0: no hope or Their hope is one of nothingness. I read a quote recently by Mike Tyson. Some of you may remember Mike. For those of you who don't remember Mike, uh, he was a boxer. And not just any boxer, he was the most feared heavyweight champion uh, at that particular point in time, which is not all that long ago. He He was essentially the last great heavyweight champion in terms of you heard the name and you recognized who he was. And now boxing is kind of irrelevant. You really don't talk, people don't talk about boxing and boxers anymore. But Mike Tyson was the last great, fearful, uh, fearsome, rather, champion who then fell into uh, infamy and was put into prison. But after he was released, he went back to boxing, but didn't do quite as well as you might imagine, but then made something of a career for himself, despite his lisp uh, in acting. Oddly enough. So here's a guy who's had it all, lost it all, got it back again. What does he say? He says, I'm weary of the reality of life,
1: and I can't wait to no longer exist. That's his hope. Uh, not existing in the presence of God, freed from the curse but the cessation of existence. And there's far too many who have that false hope
0: because to die apart from Christ is not simply to no longer exist. It's to go to the other part of Sheol and eventually to be cast into the fire
1: that was prepared for the devil and his angels. People are not just fearful of death, but right now they are weary of death. In our congregation, there have been a number of deaths—not not in the congregation, but loved ones. I've tasted that myself with my mother's passing this year. There's been a lot of death,
0: and it wearies the soul. And to those who are weary of death, Jesus reminds us, "I have tasted death for you. You now
1: have the hope of eternal life." Romans 6, last passage,
0: talks about being united to Christ, as we I mentioned earlier. But not only are we united to Him in His death, but we are also reuni- we are united to Him in His resurrection precisely so that we can have this newness of life. In other words, the Spirit transforms us now. We don't simply have a, a future way out there after we die, but we also have a new future on this earth and how we live today. Because if, what Jesus, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he says mattered, as Tim Keller talks about. And so we have a promise of a new, ex- new way of life in the present. Now, freed from the tyranny of sin, freed to be um, no longer slaves to self, but sons of God. We have a new identity. We have a new purpose. We have a new kind of life and a new power for life because now instead of simply the flesh driving everything we do, there's the Holy Spirit who comes to direct us, to guide us. Change us. And so, are you united to Christ to to receive these blessings? That's really the question that confronts every person. Are they united to Christ? In other words, do you believe in that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, to save you? Or are you believing in something else, trusting in something else to gain you life? beyond the grave. There's only one person who has conquered the grave, and that is Jesus. And any other hope outside of him is a false hope. And so I encourage you to place your hope in him, your faith in him, in him alone, precisely because, in answer to our third question, Jesus shares his victory with those who believe. So our big idea as we take those three things is that Jesus defeats the power of death for us. And I want to remind you, people die every day. They die of Alzheimer's, like my mother. They die of heart attacks. They die of strokes. They die of car accidents. They die of viruses. They die of gunshot wounds. There is the process of dying, but there's also the state of death. All people before Jesus descended to Sheol. When Jesus died, his soul went there under the power of death. But as the one righteous human being, death could not hold on to him and so he was raised by the power of the holy spirit and the will of the father out of death body and soul reunited so that we rebels could be restored to the presence of god as his sons and while we await the reunion of our body and our soul in the resurrection will be among the righteous dead in the full presence of god
1: is this your hope is faith in the resurrected Jesus the basis of this hope? If not, it's simply wishful thinking. And Wishful thinking has never gotten anyone anywhere. Now we pray. Father, we thank
0: you for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Life makes no sense apart from that the actions of the disciples makes no sense apart from the real resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So we thank you for this amazing hope that you have offered us in your son, Jesus. And Father, help us to live as people who believe in the resurrection, as people who are united to Christ and have newness of life, that is bearing good fruit in how we live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.